Hello, this is uh, Philip Terzian, Literator of the Weekly Standard, and I'm with you today to say a few words about the March 3rd issue of the Weekly Standard, specifically the Books and Arts section, which is available online at this very moment and is winging its way by way of the Postal Service to subscribers. But I wanted to give you a heads up on the contents which, as usual, is designed to appeal to as many readers as possible and to broaden horizons and stimulate interest. And our first piece is entitled The Learning Curve, What are the Aims of Education and Reform? It's a review by Jonathan Marks, who is a professor of politics at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania, it's a review of a book from Encounter Books by Glenn Harlan Reynolds, a law professor at the University of Tennessee, who some of you may know as uh, a, a blogger, as Instapundit. But the name of his, the title of his book is The New School, How the Information Age Will Save American Education from Itself. It's a conservative critique of what's wrong with secondary and higher education. And what intrigues me about the piece is that our reviewer, Jonathan Marks, um, goes with uh, Glenn Reynolds about 90% of the way. He thinks that some of, some of the issues surrounding the current debate about education, such as, for example, uh, the burden of stu student debt, might be to some degree overstated and misleading. But the reviewer, as the author, uh, does make the fundamental point that education reform is something that we've been talking about not just for decades, but probably for centuries, and it has taken many forms over time, is often a creature of the times in which it's proposed. But in the end, as they say in the business world, the bottom line is that education reform really begins from within, that it has to be a determination by each scholar, uh, and the younger they are, each scholar's parents, about what they want their child to be, what they want their education to achieve, and how the institutions that we've set up, uh, the educational institutions we've set up, can help them achieve this. And there is an eternal debate, as there is going on right at this moment, about the difference between vocational education and liberal education. Should you should you go to college, uh, largely for the uh, purpose of making more money in life, or should you go to college to become uh, uh, an educated person, someone with a background in in the classics and in in the uh, traditional forms of liberal education? Uh, is it a waste of four years, as some uh, business types uh, used to say in the 19th century, or is it the most important four years of your life, um, as humanists and, and classicists have maintained over the centuries? So it's a never-ending problem, and Professor Reynolds has some interesting observations, as I think our reviewer Jonathan Marks does as well, and I think it's it's one of those pieces that will... Uh, get you thinking on a subject which which um, uh, 
we, we think we've heard all the arguments about, but always could use a little fresh insight. The next piece we have is by my friend Mark Tooley, who is the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy in Washington, but Mark is also, and I hope he won't be bothered by this, uh, something of an amateur historian, and he has reviewed a biography of a figure who once <coughs> loomed large in, in American history in the early part of the 20th century, but is now, I don't want to say forgotten, but a lot more obscure than he used to be, but is an interesting case study. The book from the University of North Carolina Press is called Josephus Daniels, His Life and Times. Uh, Josephus Daniels is today best remembered, if he's remembered at all, as being Secretary of the Navy during Woodrow Wilson's presidency and therefore during World War I. Um, but what really secures his, his fame is that his Assistant Secretary of the Navy at that time of course, was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who went on to become President of the United States uh, 20 years later. The two uh, were about as different as two human beings could be. They were both uh, Democrats, of course, and supporters of Woodrow Wilson in 1912. FDR, of course, was a Northeastern landed aristocrat, uh, Harvard man, Josephus Daniels was a poor boy from North Carolina, who, uh, rural North Carolina, who by dint of uh, brains and industry and hard work um, made himself into a newspaper man at a time when journalism wasn't quite the respectable occupation it is today. But he ended up uh, owning the Raleigh News and Observer newspaper, very much with us today, and over time became a a uh, very important voice in North Carolina politics, North Carolina, the, the life of the state of North Carolina, which was a kind of laboratory of progressivism in its time in the early 20th century, and a, and a voice in support of the progressive movement in the United States. The interesting thing about Daniels, and I suppose from the perspective of our time, is that like many Southern progressives of his day, he was, by our lights, um, racially quite regressive. He was a supporter of segregation, um, as was Woodrow Wilson, for that matter. Um, much more retrograde on the subject of race than on the conditions of uh, uh, work and uh, labor and so on. Um, but Josephus Daniels is a good example of that paradoxical strain that goes through so many movements in American history. And Daniels himself was a teetotaling Methodist, among other things. He's the one who banned alcohol from ships of the United States Navy, a ban which, to my knowledge, exists to this day. He was very much a product. He was a Methodist, and he was very much a product of the uh, teetotal and prohibition movement of that era. And he was a pacifist as well. He had a kind of populous uh, rural southerners suspicion of, of, of the armed forces and was initially uh, considered himself antagonistic to the, to the Navy brass. But 
They made their peace, and in time, Daniels became a very effective secretary, no doubt aided and abetted by his very ambitious and sometimes uh, uh, insubordinate assistant secretary, FDR. Um, but Daniels had a parting of ways with his great political hero, William Jennings Bryan, who was Secretary of State at the time and remained true to his pacifist roots and resigned in 1915 uh, over the prospect of American entry into World War One. And when the United States finally did enter the Great War in 1917, uh, Daniels was a prodigy of achievement in getting a huge number of troops uh, from the United States to France in record time. And, of course, the U.S. Navy, which operated in that war, largely in the North Atlantic and North Sea and elsewhere, um, acquitted itself brilliantly. And so he's a He's a uh, he's a, a a figure of interest in the sense that his his fame and historical respectability rests to some degree on achievements that might have horrified him at an earlier point in his life. Daniels remained active in democratic politics and and remained as a publisher and editor of the Raleigh News and Observer. FDR, when he became president, um, uh, rewarded. Daniels with the ambassadorship to Mexico, which at that time was a bit more of a strategic post than we think of today. Mexico at that time uh, still in the throes of of post-Civil War uh, uh, chaos and disorganization, and U.S.-Mexican relations were very fraught at that time and very delicate, and and Daniels was a a, an effective representative of Washington and Mexico City, and, and indeed in due course, his um, uh, he he survived FDR, um, died uh, after Franklin Roosevelt did. His son Jonathan Daniels, by the way, ended up uh, he too was a journalist and worked as an assistant press secretary in the Roosevelt White House during World War II. And he was twenty years after that, in the mid '60s, he was the writer who first publicly uh, wrote about uh, Franklin Roosevelt's famous affair with Lucy uh, Mercer, which had been known to many people privately, but had never, ever been mentioned publicly or written about. So I heartily recommend Mark Tooley's piece on Josephus Daniels. We also have a long essay um, by Algus Valiunas, who is uh, an occasional contributor of ours, a, a, a great writer down in Florida who often takes on uh, gigantic cultural themes, and in this case, it's a 500-page biography of Gian Lorenzo Bernini, the great Baroque uh, uh, sculptor of the um, of the 17th, the late Renaissance, really, the uh, late 16th, early 17th century. Anyone who's been to Rome or has seen pictures of Rome from that era knows um, Bernini's work. You know it even if you don't know that it's Bernini's work. His famous Fountain of the Four Rivers. Um, the Probably his best-known statue is the Ecstasy of St. Teresa, which illustrates a scene in St. Teresa's um, autobiography where she talks about being pierced by the arrow of, of God. And it's a wonderful evocation of of her 
of her the passage in her book where she talks about that it employs all of Bernini's late Baroque um, signature uh, tendencies which is a very close attention to detail lots of rippling stone and passionate expressions and it's a kind of uh, example of a sculptor almost to some degree uh, showing off with his his versatility and his extraordinary skill in in detail I've always remembered one of the speaking of education reform one of the things I always gripe about is that we often are victims of the opinions of the teachers we had when we were young and I can remember in high school I had a history teacher who she couldn't stand Bernini she thought he was a show-off and ludicrous and and so I for a long time always thought of him as kind of a vulgar creature and this new um, this new biography of, of Bernini um, which is by a uh, um, by a scholar called Franco Mormondo, and it's published by the University of Chicago Press. It's called Bernini, His Life and His Rome. It puts Bernini very much in historic context. He was one of, he lived a long life. He he was in and out of favor with the various uh, popes in in the Vatican. Uh, he was in and out of um, fashion artistically, even within his lifetime. Um, but it gave me a real appreciation for Bernini and and uh, um, allowed me to overcome the uh, scruples that had been instilled in me by Mrs. Skopik, who, uh, whether she is alive or not, I can now I can now report that her influence over my opinion of Bernini is is well and truly dead. We have a very nice essay um, by Ed. Edwin Yoder on John Keegan, the military historian, uh, who died two years ago. He would have been, he Keegan would have been eighty this year. Keegan is well known to American readers. I think best known for his groundbreaking work in 1976, *The Face of Battle*, in which he took um, a handful of famous battles in history in which the British had fought: uh, Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme from World War One, and really describe them in a way that the average reader could understand those battles as they were experienced by the soldiers who fought them. It was a kind of bottom-up view of military history that has become much more familiar to us now, but was uh, military history, like political history, tend to be written from the top down up until Keegan, and there's nothing wrong with that, and it has its place, certainly, but Keegan's work really made what the experience of war, uh, what it what it meant to the soldiers who were actually out there in the fields, under the trees, in the mud, uh, holding whatever weapons of the era that they had in their hands, what it meant to go into battle. And you you can't read any of uh, Keegan's work without coming away with a, a fuller and deeper appreciation of what it means to fight in battle. He went on, of course, to write innumerable other books, a wonderful account of of the um, of the war in Normandy during the Second World War, and and others as well. He he wrote a book I'm particularly fond of called Fields of Battle, which is about um, warfare as it has been fought uh, in. North America since the uh, Europeans came to North America in the uh, in the uh, 17th century. So uh, Ed Yoder 
uh, actually knew John Keegan. I myself met him once or twice, but but Yoder knew him much better and was roughly his contemporary. I think um, uh, Yoder was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford in the mid-1950s, and I think that's when Keegan was there. They, they, they met there and knew one another and had a lot of mutual friends, and it's a it's a very nice essay in the sense that it's both a personal appreciation of of Keegan um, as a human being and as a friend, but also as really one of the distinguished historians of our time. Uh, and one of the interesting footnotes about John Keegan, which which Yoder talks about, is that he had a he had a, a curious form of tuberculosis in his childhood, which left him. Um, uh, I don't exactly know what the how it manifested itself physically, but he uh, the the two times I saw him, he had a very pronounced limp, and he always emphasized in his writings that although he wrote about war and taught at Sandhurst, which is the British Royal Military Academy, roughly equivalent to our West Point, um, he himself had of course never been anywhere near a battle, had never heard a battle, never been uh, anywhere even approximately close to battle, and was himself um, physically barred um, from military service, which makes his achievement even more interesting and remarkable. Our final piece is an essay by Eli Lehrer, who's a writer here in Washington, writes frequently on disparate cultural subjects for me. But it's about Netflix, which, for those of you who are up to date on your television services, is um, very popular at the moment because of um, uh, one uh, program in particular called House of Cards, which is a a serial about life. On uh, the, the hero is played by Kevin Spacey, who's a slightly... Um, a sinister member of Congress, and Eli makes the point that it has always been, ever since, well, it's been going on for decades, but probably the apotheosis of this argument was in 1976 with Network, uh, the movie, Patty Chayefsky's movie, and that is that, that news and entertainment are getting closer and closer together, and that the corporate ownership of television networks means that the the distinction between news and entertainment will be politics and entertainment will be uh, indistinguishable um, and Eli Lehrer makes the case that in fact it's it, they couldn't be more far apart and House of Cards while an entertaining program and, and full of high production values and, and I'm sure Kevin Spacey turns in a, a good performances uh, is nevertheless uh, very much a fantasy, very much a kind of uh, Hollywood vision of what life in Washington is really like. Um, I can attest as a native Washingtonian how difficult it is for uh, plays, movies, uh, and other media to, to capture what life is like in the, in the capital city, and House of Cards seems no exception to that. But Eli talks about it, and also the fact that we are now living in this this sort of postmodern media environment where Netflix and HBO and others are really driving the creative side of certainly of television much excuse me much more than the networks did but that we shouldn't read too much into what we're seeing and uh, we can rest assured that the worlds of 
entertainment and politics, despite the efforts of filmmakers to suggest otherwise, is still very, very separate. So I hope you will, um, I hope you will pick up the March 3rd issue of the Weekly Standard, not just for my section, but for the rest of the magazine, and, and give the books and arts section a, a look. I think you will find all of these pieces especially rewarding, and I very much look forward to talking to you next week. This free podcast is brought to you by The Weekly Standard, the magazine that articulates conservative principles, advances conservative ideas, and challenges the conventional wisdom. Act now and you'll receive 30 issues of The Weekly Standard magazine, plus Bill Crystal's weekly emailed newsletter. This limited offer is yours for only $30, but only if you act now by clicking the link below.